If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. sleepcoolnow.com 1212 This is our number 1 of the World According to Zig podcast for this July 30th 2017 My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. And if you go to freespeechbroadcasting.com, that's probably the easiest place to find last week's show, which in my opinion was our best ever. It was a 3-hour extravaganza. Because of uh, special circumstances, we had taken the previous week off. We also had a Very special guest in Glenn Beck. That interview is maybe, if not probably, the best we've ever done, uh, at least for the podcast. And I urge you to take a listen to it if you have not done so already. It got a lot of attention and a lot of news coverage. Of course, they always focus on all the wrong things, which I wrote a column about, which you can also find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. This week's interview might be just as good. It's definitely different. No question about that. We go from... a uh, conservative media star who's anti-Trump to a conservative media star although I use the term conservative loosely who is very pro-Trump I'm referring to Milo Yiannopoulos who has a new book out called Dangerous which has been uh, going up the bestseller list although he's not happy about how far it's going up the bestseller list but we speak for over an hour and I urge you to listen to all of it especially by the way if you happen to be a fan of my work on the Penn State case because at the very end we talk about that because he and I had a very interesting conversation this week on the telephone about his view on that and you're thinking well, what would he know about that and he actually potentially has a very important and unique perspective because he was abused by a catholic priest at exactly the same age as Sandusky's supposed accuser so lots of reasons to listen to our number 2 with uh, Milo Annapolis uh obviously a ton to get to in hour number 1 which is traditionally our news hour wow um every week we seem to say this uh, you know it just can't get any nuttier uh, and there's a ton to get to I'll get to all of it for me personally this week though uh, I was on what we loosely call vacation <laughs> although it's not really a vacation I don't know what the true definition of vacation is but for me Family vacation is not a vacation. That's actually work. That's that's the one of the most difficult weeks if not the most difficult week of the year. The best part about family vacation for me other than I guess my daughter, 5-year-old Grace, you remember her, you know, she she's the one who asked the uh, existential question about uh, Donald Trump. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? And also understood why the old uh, nationally syndicated radio show had to go. It's costing money. All right, so she she has a good time cuz she loves getting out of the house, she loves hotels, she loves hanging out with her cousins, maybe a little bit too much. So that part's good. But in exchange for that, there's a heavy price to pay, and personally the best part is going on a family vacation is actually a great way for me to appreciate my regular life a lot more. I I have a theory that if family vacations occurred more than once a year, they would never happen at all. Because what happens is people forget how horrendous they are by the time the next one comes around 
And humans being humans, we just presume, well, okay, it's going to be better or they forget how bad it was. We, we, have, tends to, we tend to have this defense mechanism where we erase all these horrible memories and we're even, even I, not known as an optimist, tend to be optimistic. And then you immediately go, oh, yeah. Yeah, especially when you add an infant into this equation with a wife who's not getting nearly enough sleep and who is under an enormous, you know, to me, and we can't do this, one, because it's not our mentality, and two, you know, we're not in a financial situation to do it. To me, to do a vacation properly, you got to go first class because otherwise, inevitably, it's going to create tension. It's going to create pressure. It's going to create backlash, especially under the circumstances with a wife with not enough sleep and an infant who's crying and a five-year-old who's spoiled. But when you don't do it first class, all those things really just explode to the forefront. And so this was, frankly, borderline torture. I mean, every aspect of my life was much worse than it normally is. And I know that this is a first-world problem, that spending a week at a, at a hotel near the beach in Southern California is is a horrible experience. But trust me, I can't think of one aspect of my life that was not appreciably worse this week than it would normally be, which again, the best part of that is, gee, my life must not suck nearly as badly as I sometimes think that it does. Uh, As for Grace, she did have a good time. Um, Maybe the most uh, uh, humorous element occurred when on the beach, uh, she, you know, uh, impromptu and without provocation, went into a Donald Trump impression that I think you'll enjoy. Here's what that sounded like. I am the leader. Do as I say. <laughs> Who is that, Grace? Who were you imitating? Yeah. <laughs> I am the leader. Do as I say. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Grace. That's her impression of Donald Trump. I am your leader. Do as I say. One of the uh, great revelations uh, of this vacation, uh, unfortunately, these are not good, uh, is how many different ways, because this got me thinking when she said this, it got me thinking about how many different ways five-year-old Grace is really a lot like Donald Trump. And I'll be writing a column for Mediate this week, that which might be epic, because I'm up to about 20 different personality characteristics that my five-year-old daughter and our president a share before we get, which is not a good thing, by the way. I love Grace, but she should not be president of the United States. Before we get to all the Trump news this week, um, I do want to mention that even though it seems like it was about a month ago, there was some something really good that happened this week. Jordan Spieth once again reminded us that it is possible for an American to do great things and to do so in an honorable fashion. Uh, he won the British Open in in a very dramatic performance that really showed what he is all about and why it is that I like the guy so much. And for those of you who have been big fans of this radio, the radio show and now the podcast, you may recall that at one point I had convinced my daughter Grace that she was going to marry Jordan Spieth. This, my influence with Grace has waned now so much that, uh, that she no longer believes that she will be marrying uh, Jordan Spieth. Her mother was always against it because Jordan Spieth was too old and balding already. Uh, and um, I was really surprised I was able to convince Grace even at the beginning. But now I'm, I'm so irrelevant to Grace that uh, even that dream has, has officially died. But part of why I uh, had, you know, you know, humorous way I dreamed of my daughter uh, one day probably being the second wife for Jordan Spieth is that he really does appear to be a guy of tremendous character and he showed every bit of it as well as some really big balls uh, by losing the lead in the final round of the British Open in dramatic fashion and then under incredibly chaotic circumstances keeping his head during a, a, a very strange uh, ruling situation where he ended up uh, hitting a, a shot off the driving range and somehow saving bogey, staying one shot behind, and then immediately flipping a switch and playing some of the best golf under the circumstances I've ever seen in my life really was something special. And here's a guy who uh, it does not appear that fame has gone to his head, that he keeps everything in perspective, uh, he is very close to his his sister, who is disabled, 
and they have an amazing relationship. He claims that and seems to do so credibly that his faith and his family are more important to him than golf. And, you know, there are many ways in which he is different than my former golfing hero, Tiger Woods. Interestingly, I'd say my best golf prediction, maybe my best sports prediction of all time, which I did on Twitter back in early 2014, and occasionally I retweet it whenever it's relevant. In early 2014, before most of the world had ever heard of Jordan Spieth, and when Tiger Woods was still number one in the world, it was only that long ago, very early 2014, he would just coming off of a player of the year performance in 2013, how quickly that dissipated and how much he has fallen since then. He's not even in the top thousand in the world today and may never play again. Uh, but I predicted that that week when history was written would be the week which people would look back on and go, that was the end of Tiger's reign as the greatest and the beginning of Jordan Spieth's. But they're very, very, very different people, very different golfers. Tiger was a machine. And it was amazing to watch the machine when it was at its peak. And it was exciting, and it was something we'd never seen before. Jordan Spieth is a human being with human flaws, but also with apparently far more character than we now know that Tiger Woods had. He also had very different priorities. Golf was everything to Tiger, which was part of the problem as it turned out, and didn't have the perspective of Jordan Spieth. He also was much better in a pure golfing form than Spieth is. Spieth makes a lot of mistakes, but how he handles his mistakes is what really makes him special. And so it was, um, it was great to see uh, Jordan do that, and he is in now some rarefied air. He is, along, along with Tiger Woods and Jack Nicklaus, the only people at his age to have ever won three of the four legs of the golfing Grand Slam. In fact, he did so sooner than even Tiger Woods did. So with all the darkness, with all the reasons for pessimism, at least we've got Jordan Spieth. <laughs> that's, and that's how I'm going to look at the world, especially based upon the craziness that was this particular Newsweek. Now, it's, it's difficult to, to know where to begin this week when it came to all the insanity that came out of the uh, Trump White House and surrounded the tri- Trump White House. But, you know, I think it's probably a good time for me to address something that I've been seeing a lot in reactions to my anti-Trump opinions, both uh, on Twitter and Facebook and even in my own real life. By the way, part of the reason why my family vacation was somewhat somewhat hellish is that almost all of my in-laws are full-on Trumpsters. So you can't even have a conversation. It's not even possible to discuss, which eliminates, (laughs) at least for me, an enormous... (laughs) number of potential topics because I'm, you know, sitting there going, I cannot believe this is all actually happening and I can't even talk about it because I know it's just going to lead to an argument. But what I'm referring to is that in an effort, I believe, for people to be able to rationalize my very strong anti-Trump stance, not that I'm important, but people like to be able to fit everything into a worldview that makes them feel good about themselves. I'm noticing that people are, are starting to come up with this theory that John, you just hate Trump so much. Or, in a related theory, you are invested in Trump's failure because you're going to benefit from Trump's failure. That you aren't looking at this clearly. You're seeing everything through a clouded prism. By the way, that's a perfectly fair question to ask of anybody who's even remotely in the news media. I, I applaud that question. However, to me, I do find it a bit insulting because I basically lived my entire life based upon and, and, and have the bruises and the bullet holes to prove it, to prove that that's not the way I operate. It's not even close to the way I operate. And I could talk for hours proving that there's no evidence to back up the theory that that's the way I look at things. Now, as far as the I hate Trump so much, actually, I, I do despise him. I, I will not make any bones about that but my real hatred you know my real anger in this whole thing is much more towards the people he duped this you know the smarter people then i realize there are a lot of dumb people out there but the, the people who should have known better the people who got duped or just decided to go along with this basically this this uh drug induced party because it was going to be fun, 
even though they, they should have known better that, that we were going to pay a very, 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 very steep price for this, this drug binge, those are the people, the people that got duped that should not have been, for whom I have the greatest anger. It's not really Trump. Trump, I, in a weird way, I, I kind of have a little bit of, I don't know, respect's probably too strong a word, but he's just, he's just a con man conning. He's doing what he does. You know, as a lot of people this week referred back to a, a poem that Trump read during the campaign about the snake. You knew what I was. And everyone's going, well, gee, he was, he was basically giving us a message back then that he's the snake biting the, woos- the bosom of the woman who saved him. Well, that's who Trump is. So in a weird way, I don't have that much anger. I have some. Don't like him at all. Have disdain for him. But my real hatred is for the people who were duped that shouldn't have been. So that's the first fault in the premise. The second fault in the hate premise is this is a very dangerous argument to be made. And I realize there there are people who are going to misinterpret the analogy I'm about to make, but I don't care because it's a proper analogy, even though it's exaggerated. I'm sure that there were Jews (laughs) who were told during Hitler's reign, oh, you just hate the guy so much, we're not going to listen to anything you say about him. How would that be? How, how, How much logic would there be behind that? Sometimes... You hate a guy because he's worthy of hatred and you're correct in your assessment and you're warning other people about him. Again, I'm not comparing Trump to Hitler. I don't think we're anywhere near to that point yet, even though some people might disagree with me. We're getting closer, especially if you watch that Boy Scout speech this week. Looked an awful lot like Hitler youth to, to a lot of people, but I digress. The point here is just because you you have disdain for someone, hatred for someone, doesn't mean you're wrong. And then the other element that I'll address before we get to the actual news is this idea that somehow this is going to be good for me or for other anti-Trumpers. Uh-uh. That is never going to happen. And I know this largely because there, it is incredibly similar. This whole crusade is incredibly similar to my experience on the Penn State story. People, by the way, have tried to make the same argument. Oh, you're just betting on this other side because it's going to benefit you if it turns, you know, the lottery ticket pays off. Bullshit. (laughs) First of all, the lottery ticket ain't ever going to pay off. Number two, even if it did, I've already accepted the reality on both Penn State and Trump that people like me, and specifically me on Penn State because I'm basically the only one doing it, at least publicly, is that people like me will be blamed for why this happened. We're not going to get any credit. Like eight people on Facebook will say, wow, you really called it. You were right. Thanks for warning us. And that'll be it. Big flipping deal. There will be no benefits here. There will be, in all seriousness, there will be an incentive for people like me to be blamed. Well, if you guys hadn't been so sanctimonious about it or such assholes about it, or if you'd done it, if you'd convinced us properly, or if you'd had the proper platform, we would have believed you. We would have trusted. No, it's all rationalization. But what happens is once people are invested in a myth, once they have been duped, they are never, ever in large numbers going to have the courage to say, oh my gosh, I was duped. I apologize to you for having warned me that I was being duped. And now I'm going to make things right. <laughs> That's not going to happen. The major conservative media outlets aren't going to suddenly go to the, the anti-Trumpers when this is all said and done and goes, wow, boy, you guys were the ones that write. We need, we're right. We need to hire you. <laughs> we need to publish your books. We need to give you shows on Fox News Channel. That's not going to happen. We already know what the narrative is going to be. Trump made it very clear this week when he fired Rince Priebus, and now it's clear he's going after the GOP. This is all going to be, oh, Trump would have been awesome if it hadn't been for the horrible cowards in the Republican Party. I guarantee you that narrative is going to hold. Why? Not because it's true. I mean, there's a shred of truth to it, but not because it's overwhelmingly true. It's because people have an incentive to buy that narrative because it gets them off the hook for having been fucking duped. It's all about what people want to believe. Truth means shit, all right? Truth is shit. 
in this world right now, especially in America, especially in Trump world. Truth has no meaning, no value whatsoever. In fact, it is harmful far more than it is hurtful, which is partially why I have disdain for Trump and those who were duped by him. Because that's the world we're now living in. And as a truth guy, this pisses me off. I'm sorry. So I realize that's not going to convince too many people because if you're incentivized to buy into a bullshit narrative, you're going to buy into it regardless. But I actually think I've been incredibly fair to Trump. I've given him every opportunity to show me that I'm wrong. And by the way, here's the ultimate proof that I'm not clouded in my judgment about Trump. If I was, I would be wrong about him constantly. I would be wrong about what he's going to do and not do. I would be wrong about when he's lying and not lying. Yet, if you look at my track record, it's pretty flipping good. And this week, by the way, one of the major things I warned about during the campaign, and this was one of the things that really baffled me about my old co-host, Liam Brandon, on the nationally syndicated radio show on Sunday nights, and our relationship ended up being destroyed over her getting what I refer to as the Trump virus, she lived through the Arnold Schwarzenegger situation, which I was one of the first, if not the first person to call while as a talk show host at KFI in Los Angeles. I remember the moment it happened. Schwarzenegger lost a special election with a whole bunch of propositions. The next day, he held a press conference, and it was clear from the verbiage he was using, oh, my God, He's going to be a full-on Democrat from now on. And I was right. And I warned Leah, and I warned everybody else that would listen, if this doesn't go well, right off the bat, he's going to turn into Schwarzenegger. It's funny that he and Schwarzenegger hate each other's guts because they're the same people. They're made of the same stuff. Frankly, I think Schwarzenegger's actually got more substance (laughs) than Trump does. Schwarzenegger's actually accomplished more in his life than Trump. Schwarzenegger is more honest than Trump. But Schwarzenegger ended up being a complete dirtbag. And he crapped all over the Republican Party here in California once he realized that he could no longer use them for his own benefit. And the Republican Party is now destroyed in this state. Now, because of demographic reasons, I don't think that Trump will be able to do quite as good or complete a job on national Republicans as Schwarzenegger did on California Republicans, but it might be close. We'll get more to that as we move along here. But let's talk about the news of the week. Very difficult to discern which was the most important story or which story to start with first, but I'm going to start with a story that might have been the most important and also is one where a lot of people are missing the most important element of it. And even I'm kind of shocked, and I think it's it really does expose how desensitized we all are to the insanity of what's going on with Trump. It's just flat out ridiculous. Here's what I mean. I'm referring to the dramatic late night vote by Senator John McCain to not pass what was referred to as the skinny repeal of Obamacare. Now, let's be clear. This was not a repeal of Obamacare. That's why it was called skinny repeal. This was not a good idea. This was not done in a proper way from a a, uh, functional standpoint, from a rules perspective. I mean, it was hypocritical as hell considering our side spent years decrying the fact that Obamacare was passed without a Republican vote and we, you know, had to pass it to find out what was in it and no committee hearings and it was rushed through. All that was thrown out the window because what they were doing was way, way, way worse than even what Democrats pulled back when Obamacare was passed in 2010. So that's number one. And it's also important to point out that even those who voted for it, like Lindsey Graham, knew that if this ever became law, it would have been a complete disaster. It was never intended to become law. Now, Trump was tweeting that night, go, Senators, go. Give us great health care. I'd like to believe he was just being cynical and wanted the vote to pass. (laughs) But it's possible he had no freaking clue about what was even going on. 
Because if what had been was being debated and was being voted on had become law, everybody, even those who voted for it, knew it would have been a disaster. It was never intended to be a law. It was intended as a last-ditch effort to keep the process going and get it to a conference hearing. Now, why? Now, the reasons are complex, but here's the bottom line. After all of this rigmarole over the last several months, it became obvious that getting the full Senate over, you know, getting 50 votes plus Vice President Pence and getting a majority in the House, it was almost impossible to get both of those entities to agree on a full bill. So what they decided was, narrowing this down to brass tacks, is, well, if we get into conference, which is a negotiation between the House and the Senate, with a much smaller group of people, then we've got a chance. Then we've got a chance to come up with something brand new, and then if it goes back to the House and the Senate, now it's up or down on something that's maybe palpable, palatable, to use the proper word, palatable to actually get rid of some key parts of Obamacare, but not make us, meaning the Republican Party, vulnerable to complete catastrophe in the midterm elections next year because we're going to be accused of pulling 20, 30 million people off of Obamacare, even though that's not an accurate statement of what would have happened, but that's the way it would have been demagogued and perception is reality, especially in politics today. So that's what the vote was on. And it basically came down to John McCain. All right. Now it's important to point out Trump did nothing, nothing to help this process at all. He didn't politic for it. He did very little behind the scenes. And in fact, what he did do behind the scenes was like the day or the two days before the vote, his administration actively threatened Alaska and Senator Murkowski from Alaska. Now, this was brilliant. One, because it wouldn't be effective. And two, because she was one of the key votes. Now, where's the great deal maker? Where, where in the art of the deal does it tell you that just before a major vote where you need every, you know, you can only lose two votes and be able to pass this thing, let's threaten the state of one of the senators that's on the fence. Where's that? That's, that's just freaking brilliant. Good, good job there, Donald Trump. So he loses Murkowski's votes, vote. That wasn't a big shock. But it all came down to John McCain. Now, I realize a lot of conservatives have big problems with John McCain because he's supposedly a rhino and a maverick. And maverick has often meant he sells out to the other side for media love. I understand that, agree with it to a certain degree. Nobody's perfect. But I believe that John McCain did the right thing here. And why, but it's why John McCain did the right thing that's important. Under normal circumstances, I believe that McCain would have voted yes and would have gone along with this procedural process. But why didn't he? Well, he was afraid, and this is the key point of everything I'm going to tell you, he was afraid that somehow if they passed it out of the Senate, it would become law and be a epic disaster. Well, why would he fear that? I mean, you know, Speaker Ryan, Paul Ryan, had basically promised publicly that no, don't worry, if you pass this, we're not gonna, the House will not pass this, and therefore we don't have to worry about it being law. Now, in a rational world where people could be held to telling the truth and hold to account where the truth still mattered, that would probably be enough. But I understand McCain's skepticism as to why he might think, you know what, we could get double-crossed here because Ryan doesn't have full control over the House. And there are some factions in the House that are really pretty kooky. And it's not a situation where one person would have full and total control over it. Hell, Ryan might get ousted as Speaker. And if Ryan gets ousted as Speaker, then what? Then where are you? 
That wouldn't change the fact that the Senate had this crappy, skinny repeal bill. They could pass it. And then Trump, and this is the key part, Trump being Trump might sign it simply so he could say he repealed Obamacare. Now, if only, if only we lived in a world where there was one person who would have the power, kind of like as a goalkeeper, to make sure with 100% certainty that the skinny repeal bill would never become law. If only that person exists. Oh, wait a minute. That person did exist. He's the president of the United States. His name is Donald Trump. He could have easily promised to veto the bill if it ever came to his desk. There are reports that he did do that in a last-ditch attempt to convince McCain to go ahead and vote yes. I don't know that for fact, but it's been reported. No one denied it. I have no problem believing that's true. But here's the problem. Put yourself in McCain's position. Are you really going to believe Donald Trump? Are you really, seriously, going to believe Donald Trump on anything? I'm very capable of changing to anything I want to change to. Why in the world would you trust the word of a pathological liar who has been open about the fact that he changes with the wind. So if you're McCain, Trump calling you and telling you, don't worry about it, John, I'll veto this if it somehow gets through the House. You can't take his word. His word means nothing. And so this idea that McCain is getting blamed, oh, he's a traitor, a sellout, no, No, the primary fundamental problem here is that we have a president of the United States who cannot be trusted by even his own allies. That's the problem. Anybody else, anybody, other than maybe Chris Christie, who's a scumbag, but almost anybody else running for the Republican nomination, McCain would have been able to trust and said, okay, you tell me, Mr. President, you're going to veto this. I will with my... With my two fingers on my nose, I will help this piece of crap, skinny repeal, pass so that we might be able to do this in conference. I'll do that because I trust you. This is on Trump. This is all about, this is the price we pay for having a pathological piece of shit as President of the United States. And nobody is mentioning this. Which is amazing to me. And a part of the, I think the main reason people are not mentioning it is one, people don't think things through, amazingly. And two, we become so desensitized that I think a lot of people are like, well, no shit. Who would ever, who would ever have trusted Trump's veto promise? Everyone knows he's not trustworthy. It's just accepted. That's pretty pathetic. That's really pathetic if we're at the point where. We're just accepting the fact that a promise of a veto for the President of the United States means nothing. Can you imagine the ramifications of that? How do you function as a government? You can't. And this is why the the Congress isn't passing anything. Because you've got a president who holds a rose garden ceremony prematurely celebrating the House passing and a a, uh, alleged appeal of Obamacare, even though it really wasn't an appeal of Obamacare, and then publicly saying that that vote was mean. You can't trust him to keep his word, and you can't trust him not to stab you in the back. That's what leadership is supposed to be about. And Trump is a negative on this process, and not just a little bit of negative. Here's a guy who promised to be a dealmaker. His whole campaign mythological narrative is I, only I, remember that? I, only I (laughs) can solve our problems. I will make the best deals. I will hire the best people. We're going to win so much, you're going to get tired of winning. Remember that? We're over six months in now, folks. It's supposed to, this first six months is supposed to be when you get most of the stuff done. Where's all the winning? Where's all the winning? Anyone else tired of winning? Because I'm not. 
We've gotten squat other than Gorsuch. Fantastic. Neil Gorsuch, great. We replaced Scalia with another person who appears to be, at least so far, a reliable conservative. So no damage done on the Supreme Court. Fantastic. But nothing else is going to happen. Now, maybe tax reform will, if only out of desperation. But it certainly appears as if the idea that we're going to replace Obamacare, well, not technically dead, might as well be. But the worst part is that conservatives now somehow own it. That's an amazing feat. Our side now owns Obamacare in public perception and politically. And Trump's making it even worse by publicly declaring, well, we'll just let it implode. Um, hello? <laughs> you don't think that's going to be used against Republican candidates regardless of the status of Obamacare in 2018? He's effectively, I mean, you might, that might be your strategy. That's a reasonable strategy. But you don't say it publicly. Because once you say it publicly, now you're easily blamed. Well, of course Obamacare collapsed. Our president said he wanted it to. Duh. And who's going to get blamed for that? Republicans. Because Trump is falsely perceived as a Republican. Now, another big story this week, which I have been dead on right about against conventional wisdom, which wouldn't be happening if I, my judgment was clouded about Donald Trump, deals with his treatment of Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Now, I wrote a column about this general issue of what team Trump really is on that was provoked largely by him throwing Sessions under the bus this week. Remember that? Happened like five or six days ago for, for several days in a row. I know it's hard to remember that far back in Trump world. But if you go to freespeechbroadcasting.com, you can check out that column. And it really relates to a lot of what I think are the the major issues facing us going to the future here. Because this is a president who's not on the Republican team. He's on Team Trump at best. And he might actually, whether he wants to be or not, be on the Democratic team without them getting any punishment for it. That's the worst part. They'll get no blame. All the blame will go on Republicans and conservatives. But for those who forget, on multiple occasions, publicly, via Twitter and elsewhere, and in an interview, and in a a press conference, Donald Trump went out of his way to diss his attorney general. Not just any attorney general. Jeff Sessions is his first major endorser of the campaign. Oh, by the way, also a guy popular within the conservative ranks of the U.S. Senate, which was currently debating... The Obamacare bill. So that didn't help either. How the hell are you going to ask people to trust you on Obamacare when you're dissing their friend and the guy who was the first major political figure to endorse you at the very same time? I mean, Lindsey Graham voted in the end for the skinny repeal, but how in the world was dissing Jeff Sessions helpful to getting Lindsey Graham or John McCain, to vote for the skinny repeal. It wasn't, but Trump either doesn't think about that kind of stuff or doesn't care because all he cares about is himself. And my perception of what's going on with Jeff Sessions is Trump has figured out that this Russia investigation is trouble for him. Now, why it's trouble, I don't know. I still don't know whether or not there was actual collusion or whether collusion can ever be actually proven, but it is clear, it is obvious, as as obvious as it could be, that Trump fears what Mueller is doing. He cannot politically get rid of Mueller directly. So I think he's trying to get rid of Sessions as a way of getting leverage to eventually get rid of Mueller because Sessions recused himself from the Russian investigation. And I still believe that the statements that Trump has made regarding Sessions and that recusal are effectively a guilty plea on his part, at least a guilty plea of some knowledge because he has on numerous occasions made it obvious that it would have been legitimate for for Sessions to tell him 
back in November, December of last year that he was going to recuse himself from any Russia investigation. There was no official Russia investigation publicly known at that time, and much of the information that caused his recusal was not known at that time, unless Trump knew it, which would have meant that it was legitimate for Sessions to recuse himself. Well, how did Trump know that? But no one, I've written in a column, which you can find about that also at freespeechbroadcasting.com that's a couple weeks old, but still uh, very relevant to what's going on today. So Trump goes after Sessions in very demeaning fashion. His own attorney general, at a time of great uh, chaos, I mean, this is, this is not helpful in any way possible, any way, shape, or form. It's not helpful to the vote in the Senate. It's not helpful to the, to the Russia investigation situation. It, it, is, it is toxic. Not to mention the, the flat-out loyalty or disloyalty issue of doing this to Jeff Sessions. There's also the political element of Sessions being the number one point man on Trump's biggest campaign issue, which was illegal immigration. And by all accounts, Sessions is actually doing a good job on that front. Although there's been no deportation forces that we were promised, and there's not going to be any wall that we were promised, and Mexico's certainly not going to pay for it like we were promised. But I digress. We already knew all that if you had a half a brain. But I predicted all week long on Twitter and Facebook, Trump doesn't have the balls to fire Jeff Sessions. He's a ballless bully. Now, some people are saying he's, he's playing eight-dimensional chess again which I don't believe, because I've always believed with Trump. He's making it up as he goes and not. Yeah, there, there's no eight-dimensional chess. There's one-dimensional shoots and ladders. That's what he plays. He doesn't even, I'm not even going to give him credit for checkers anymore. But there are some that believe that he got rid, that, that the shakeup in the White House is also that he could move Sessions to another cabinet appointment, not Attorney General, and that this way he would eventually be able to get rid of Mueller with a new attorney general. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I guess it's possible, but I'm no longer buying the eight-dimensional chess theory. But I predicted numerous times that Trump's M.O. here is to try to force people to quit. It's what he did with Rince Priebus this week. He almost never fires anybody. And he certainly wouldn't have the balls to fire Sessions. Because the fire sessions would cause outrage in the Senate. It would cause outrage at Breitbart, which it did. It would cause outrage among his base of those who still laughably believe that he's going to build a wall and deport illegal aliens. It would cause outrage among elements of the South where sessions is popular, especially in Alabama. So he doesn't have the balls. If he doesn't have the balls to fire Rince Priebus, which he really didn't do. He just humiliated, or he had Scaramucci humiliate him until he resigned and then he accepted his resignation. He does not have the balls to fire Sessions. And if he was going to do it, he would have done it already. But he didn't. Instead, what did he do? He created two giant diversions. And this is not coincidental. This is him playing, I guess, bad checkers. He did two things once it looked like everyone's saying, oh, my God, he's going to fire Sessions. And there was blowback. You know, basically, here's what happened with Sessions. This is all a reality show, folks. And Trump is always looking for a, for a new plot twist in the reality show. And so Trump was in the writer's room and he said, hey, guys, I got a great idea. What if I fire Jeff Sessions? Now, Trump's used to all the writers going, oh, my God, great idea, boss. Let's go for it. But on this one, the usually sycophantic writers go, uh, no fucking way. <laughs> That's a really bad idea. <laughs> and Trump, after seeing the blowback, said, okay, never mind. Never really happened. Let me create a diversion so that people forget that I was going to fire Sessions, even though I really wasn't because I'm a ballless bully. And he doesn't want to be exposed as a ballless bully, so he needs to create some diversion so people will forget their attention spans as short as his that he was ever going to really fire Sessions. So what does he do? He goes on Twitter, and in very dramatic fashion, in a way that apparently scared the crap out of the Pentagon, thinking that we might be 
announcing an attack on North Korea. I'm not making this up. This is doesn't appear to be fake news. But he, he tweeted with a nine-minute interval in between the first tweet and the second tweet that he was banning transgender people from serving in the military. Now, I don't know whether or not transgender people should be in the military or not. I do know that once they're there, it changes the equation, like, a lot like Obamacare. Once Obamacare is the law of the land, it becomes very difficult to change. Once transgender people, and apparently thousands of them are, although I'm skeptical of some of the numbers that we heard this week, but okay, whatever. There's, there's a significant number of transgender people now in the military. Now once you pull them out, possession nine-tenths of the law and the nature of the news media and you know personal human stories of tragedy, that's much more difficult. So it would be one thing to be against transgender people ever entering the military, yanking them out, that's a horse of a completely different color. By the way, considering we're talking about transgender, it's probably pastels. It's a pastel-colored horse, but I digress. Anyway, the point here is it's a totally different equation of trying to take people out. And what ended up happening? And, and frankly, in any other week in, the hit, in my life, other than maybe Nixon's resignation and maybe, you know, the Monica Lewinsky revelations coming out big on almost any other week, 9-11, obviously almost any other week in my lifetime, the story of the military telling the president, yeah, why don't you uh, put this in an actual official directive before we do anything? We're not taking orders from Twitter, Mr. President. And that was effectively the response from the military. That would have been the biggest story by far of the week, but it wasn't because we're living in an insane world. But that doesn't scare you. I mean, we got a military that's openly now, and this is a guy who's pro-military, loves my generals, he says. My generals. My general. Can you imagine how the right wing would have reacted if Barack Obama had ever referred to the generals as, I've directed my generals. Oh, my God. The freak out would have been apocalyptic. Instead, everyone now, you know, <laughs> that's just Trump being Trump. Ah, oh, that's funny. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the point is, the military basically just said, go fuck yourself, Mr. President, and they've done nothing. And, you know, it would not surprise me if the transgender thing never got done because it's already, and I'm, and I'm sure about this, but I think it's more than possible, as insane as it sounds, it's more, more than possible that nobody ever gets removed from the military because of being transgender. Because the story has already served its purpose to Trump. That's all he cares about is day to day. I need a distraction today and maybe tomorrow, so I'm going to tweet this out. Forget about the fact that I'm never going to actually follow through. It doesn't matter because my moronic fans are already thrilled about this. I love the poorly educated. So they think, oh, he got rid of the damn transgenders, even though he didn't really do it. I mean, that's been his MO all along. Claim you did something, hold a ceremony saying you did something, and people will believe it. I love the poorly educated. I haven't seen any polling data on this, but I would love to know how many Trump fans think that Obamacare has been repealed. I'm willing to say it's a very high number. I'm willing to say that purely as a guess, at least 40% of Trump voters, people who voted for Donald Trump, believe that Obamacare has been repealed. So you wait. We'll see whether or not the transgender thing ever actually gets implemented. But it served its purpose. The next thing that served its purpose was Trump suck. He basically, he had Anthony Scaramucci strike out publicly against two of his then closest aides, including his chief of staff. And he did so in a obvious and premeditated fashion. Here's a guy, brand new op, uh, communications director, Anthony Scaramucci, And he attacks in profane ways Rince Priebus, then the chief of staff, and Steve Bannon, the senior White House advisor. Even saying, I'm not making this up, (laughs) 
that Bannon, unlike Bannon, he's not trying to suck his own cock. That's right. Thank you very much, Anthony Scaramucci. Those words are now legitimately in the public domain and are now legitimate topics of conversation in the news. Kind of like grabbing pussy. Fantastic. Very nice. Very conservative. Very socially conservative. I'm sure the Christian wing of what's left of the conservative movement must be very, very proud. But he also goes after Rince Priebus just as hard. In fact, at one point, either lying uh, about it or having revealed that he's sicking the FBI on Rince Priebus over leaks. So this was obviously done both as a distraction and because Trump didn't want to actually fire Rince Priebus, but he wanted to force Rince Priebus to, to quit. My sense of it is that Priebus tendered his resignation, but along with Steve Bannon, thought delusionally that the Scaramucci interview would cause a backlash and that Trump would be afraid to actually accept the resignation and that Priebus might be able to survive and even potentially prosper if Scaramucci was immediately removed, but that was never going to happen because Trump and Scaramucci are still in their honeymoon period. I mean, they are birds of a feather. They're the same people. And right now, Trump loves Scaramucci. Hell, even the story about Scaramucci leaving his still very attractive and young wife when she's nine months pregnant. In any other world, that story, as horrendous as it is, would diminish someone's prestige to a president. Not with Trump. Trump probably thinks, oh, man, Tony, that is awesome. You left her nine months pregnant? You are an alpha male, my friend. Welcome to the club. Because that's something I would do. And I'm not kidding. That's the saddest part of this whole deal. I'm not kidding. So Scaramucci goes out there with this utterly insane interview that a lunatic wouldn't give. And this creates another diversion and gets done what Trump wanted to get done, which was to get rid of Rince Priebus. Sean Spicer was already gone because of Scaramucci. Priebus thought he could survive. Obviously, that was not the case. So now Spence, uh, Sean Spicer and Rince Priebus are gone. I don't like either of them. They're both getting exactly what they deserve. Rince Priebus sold his soul during the primaries to Trump and deserves an enormous amount of the blame for how this whole thing went down. So I have disdain for Priebus. However, and I'm going to get more to this in a second, the loss of Spicer and Priebus is incredibly important and emblematic of where this whole thing is heading. But before I get there, I have to at least mention, with regard to Scaramucci, a story that has gotten way too much publicity involving a story that obviously I have been intimately involved with for five years, and that is that Scaramucci at his press conference this week, not just press conference, this was during his Bizarro World interview with CNN, he referenced a quote by Joe Paterno about honor in a way that was um, very positive. And, of course, the media flipped out about that. And in a normal interview, by the way, that would have been the headline. It didn't even make the top five or six things out of that, that crazy uh, CNN interview. But it later turned out that people found out that Scaramucci is a producer on this HBO movie about Paterno that's being produced with Al Pacino playing Joe Paterno. And people are are suggesting that Scaramucci did this for publicity for the movie. As if the movie, first of all, as if the movie is going to be a pro-Joe Paterno production. I don't think there's any chance of that at all. It's just a matter of how defamatory and how mythological it's going to be. Uh, So that's number one. Number two, people don't understand how the movie business works. Scaramucci is not in on daily meetings or even monthly meetings or maybe any meetings on the production of this movie. He's part of a company that is funding it, which I'm sure they're funding lots of other projects. This is the way the movie business works. You get called a producer because you're part of the financing. He's looking at the movie simply as a stock, basically. And it's maybe that's why Paterno was on his mind and why he had some knowledge of Paterno. By the way, it's also important to point out, he's trying to, kiss up to Donald Trump and Trump has been on the record about the only celebrity that I can think of who's been consistently on the record 
praising Joe Paterno even after the whole scandal. In fact, that's how Trump and I met backstage at the Today Show and why he sent me a, a note of, of support, which I have made uh, you know, the, the permanent uh, background photo on both my Facebook and Twitter pages kind of uh, as a great irony to have Trump be praising me uh, you know, over the whole Joe Paterno story. So my, my guess is that Scaramucci simply mentioned the Joe Paterno thing because he has knowledge of it. As an Italian, he's probably a fan of Joe Paterno. That might even be why he signed off on not even really knowing much about what the project was really going to be all about. He knows that Trump's been a Paterno supporter, so saying something nice about Paterno isn't going to turn off Trump. But he's not doing it because he's trying to promote a movie that's not coming out for who knows how long on HBO. I mean, how this movie does on HBO is is a... A, a grain of sand on the beach of Anthony Scaramucci's financial portfolio. It's absurd. But the media is so freaking stupid. And the reality is, and the ultimate irony is, that this movie is almost certainly going to defame Joe Paterno because it has to, because the mythology of what really did happen there, which is nothing, is now so ingrained that if the movie doesn't at least honor, if not forward, that bullcrap narrative, they're going to get destroyed by the media. So it's just so typical that every, you know, the truth is always lost, and the truth clearly is lost in this mini controversy over Scaramucci and the Paterno movie. But I don't believe that Scaramucci is going to be able to survive long term. I really don't. I think his star has burned way too bright, way too fast, and he's going to burn out, and uh, Trump is not going to like it. They're going to eventually, he's going to go sideways on Scaramucci, and uh, and Scaramucci should be gone. I mean, what he, he, what he has already done should already have gotten him fired, but right now I'm sure he's, uh, you know, very securely ensconced, ensconced uh, within the inner circle at the White House because Trump loves him. But the Trump love will fade fast, and Trump will screw him over like he does everybody else once he's done with him. That's just the Trump way. And that leads me back to really the most important element of this whole situation. Where are we headed? We are headed, in my opinion, for Arnold Schwarzenegger too. And the key proof of this is where are the ties to the Republican Party that are remaining within that Trump inner circle. Right now, they are basically non-existent. Spicer is gone. Previous is gone. Again, I didn't like them, but at least they were conduits and some connection to the apparatus of the Republican Party. They were vehicles through which, you know, kind of, if you will, the sane element of the Trump team. Vehicles through which people in Congress, people in the Senate could go through and say, hey, what's really going on here? Can we get this done? Can we get that done? That's gone now. Scaramucci is no conservative. He's no Republican. He gave the maximum amount to Barack Obama. He's given to almost every other liberal politician. Yes, he's also supported some Republicans like Jeb Bush, but his positions on Twitter are clearly liberal. He is no conservative, no Republican. Other people close to Trump, Jared Kushner, full-on liberal Democrat, dad, full-on liberal Democrat, wife, daughter of the, of the president, another official advisor, Ivanka, full-on Democrat, held a fundraiser in 2013 at her home for Senator Booker, full-on liberal Democrat from New Jersey. Her position's clearly liberal on a number of, of fronts. These are the people closest to Trump. What's Trump's basic set of principles? I don't think he has any principles, but over his lifetime, where has he been on the issues? Exceedingly liberal. And this is exactly why I was screaming bloody murder during the campaign as to why we cannot have him be the nominee. The first order of business, the first requirement to being a Republican presidential nominee, not a 
senatorial, congressional, you can survive. One senator nominee or congressional nominee, who cares? But the presidency is a completely different matter. The first requirement is you have some semblance of knowledge of and loyalty to at least some Republican slash conservative principles. Why? Because you never know what's going to happen once they're in office. Circumstances change. And you can't have someone that's going constantly with the wind because what if the wind blows in the wrong direction? I'm very capable of changing to anything I want to change to. That's what happened with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger came in with all guns a-blazing and ran into a brick wall here in California. And he immediately realized, okay, I got two choices. I either totally change course or I'm going to be humiliated as a partial-term governor who failed in all my promises. And I can't have that happen because the most important thing in the world is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Trump is the same way. So now what's he going to do? He's going to blame all of his failures on the Republican Party. All of it. And you know what? His fan base is going to love it. They're going to love it. And it's where we go from here is, is basically unpredictable. Because unlike with Schwarzenegger, see with Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger was not toxic anywhere near to the degree Trump is with the Democratic Party in California. They loved being close to the celebrity and having cigars with him. And he was somewhat personally popular in the state. That's not the case with Trump. Trump is toxic to the entire establishment of the Democratic Party and almost all the Democratic base. So he, he actually will be less effective in trying to do this than Schwarzenegger will. But that's what's going to cause problems. Because if we go down this path and he goes to war against the Republican Party, in 2018, his voters are going to have no incentive to vote for Republican candidates. Their hero is attacking the people that we're asking them to vote for. Why would they do that? In fact, not only is he attacking them, they're the reason why their great and powerful Oz isn't giving them the gifts that he promised. So is that going to help or hurt Republican chances in 2018? It's going to crush them. Not because the, the Trump fanatics are... 50% 50% of the party or even 40%. I think they're probably, depending on your definition, 25 to 35% of the party. But if 25 to 35% of the party stays home, the most you know, fanatical elements of it, guess what? That's a landslide. Now we have Democrats controlling at least the House, probably not the Senate simply because of the map. But now everything's changed because now impeachment is on the table. And Trump is going to turn into a full-on Democrat for his own personal survival. That's what he's going to do. Now, how Democrats react to that, I don't know. It's going to be fascinating to watch. But it's not good for conservatism. It's not good for Republicanism. And it's not good for the country. And it will have, unfortunately, created a circumstance where my greatest fear has come to fruition where we sold everything, everything, our honor, our principles, our credibility, everything we claim to believe in, and got nothing in return, and instead created a circumstance where the backlash we're going to endure, maybe led by Trump himself, is going to be horrendous. And his tweets this weekend about getting rid of the filibuster, oh my God. Oh, my God. The filibuster is the only reason why the Barack Obama presidency was not catastrophic. And if we got rid of the filibuster now, because Trump wants us to, and by the way, it doesn't even make any damn sense because we couldn't get 50 votes for skinny repeal. What what, what the hell is he even talking about in the need for 60? This didn't need 60. Sometimes I don't, is he that bad at math or is he just lying? I don't know. But the point here is, if we got rid of the filibuster and then the Dems took The House and the Senate, (laughs) with Trump as president, look the fuck out. Protect your backside, because it will be ugly.
And, of course, none of those that gave us Trump will pay any real significant price. At least that's my fear. So on that happy note, that's a week in review. I, I didn't even get really to the Boy Scout uh, uh, speech, which, which was insane. The police speech, which was almost as insane. Uh, the Russian sanctions bill, which was hilarious because the president is now trying to claim that he had something to do with modifying the Russian sanctions bill, which is the biggest F you to him that the Republican Congress could ever even think of. But we only have so much time. As I always do, I ask only two things from you, and that is if you enjoyed this uh, podcast, make sure you share it via social media and word of mouth, Twitter, Facebook, what have you. Uh, Also, make sure you listen to hour number two because we've got a great interview with Milo Ionopoulos that you will not want to miss. And uh, also do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Until next week, remember our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.